0: Romans chapter 9. Let me read the first five verses, but we'll be looking at most of the chapter. This is Paul. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a Cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And then the beginning of verse 6 it is not as though god's word had failed. Romans chapter 9 is one of the principal places in the scriptures that we find teaching on god's predestination. When this is where people go for ammo for their theological battles over god's sovereign choice and human free will. But I want to suggest that that is a mistake. And for more than one reason. For one thing, those theological battles can scar sincere Christians and cause honest inquirers to head for the secular hills. And for another, while this passage raises the issue of divine sovereignty and human free will, and I should say, this passage takes divine sovereignty for granted in the affairs of humans it is manifestly not about that. It's about how God has been achieving his purpose despite human rebellion and faithlessness. In Romans 9, Paul tells Israel's story, including important scenes in which God chooses some people and then hardens others. Paul does not include those scenes because he wants to present his theory on the interaction between divine sovereignty and human free will. But because he wants to offer proof that God will overcome every obstacle, accomplish his purpose, and make good on his promises. He wants to convince readers that God is righteous. That's the theme of the entire letter, remember. And reliable. That's what chapters 9 through 11 are all about. It's important to keep Paul's objective in mind when interpreting Romans 9 through 11. You know... Interpreting Romans 9-11 through is like riding a bicycle along a a vastly interesting but sometimes uphill path. We need to push on to the goal that comes at the end of chapter 11, which is the accomplishment of God's purpose for us and for the world to his unending glory. If we stop pedaling too soon, we will lose our theological balance and fall into and maybe even get stuck in some prickly secondary things. Now, chapter 9 is structured around three questions. The first is the elephant in the room question behind verse 6. Has God's word failed? Has God failed? Now, remember when Paul was writing, the vast majority of his fellow Jews, God's chosen people, did not believe in Jesus the Messiah. How could that be? Didn't Paul just say that nothing can separate God's people from his love in Messiah? But it certainly looked like something had. Did God, who made promises to the Jewish people, just as he's made promises to us, fail to keep his word? And if he couldn't keep his promises to them, how can we trust him to keep his promises to us? Has God's word failed? That is the question, the fountainhead from which Romans chapter 9 through 11 the second question around which chapter 9 is structured comes in verse 14. Is God unjust because he chooses some and not others? Now, that question is often asked in one form or another today. The way Paul answers it provides fresh, a fresh and inspiring vision of God. The third question, verse 19, grows directly out of the second. And it is, if God selectively works in the lives of one person, but not another, how can he possibly blame people that he didn't select when they fail? Those are the questions that pave the path that Paul is traveling in chapter 9. But we must keep in mind where the path leads, to the salvation of God's people and his unending glory. We mustn't mistake some stop along the way for the destination, which has been done, for example, with the teaching in this passage regarding predestination. People come to the predestination verses and they hop off the bus. They take a stand on one side or the other of the verse and forget about the destination to which we're headed, and that's a crying shame, because Paul's trying to take us to a beautiful, marvelous place. All right, chapter 9. After the powerful... An uplifting final paragraph of chapter 8. The first sentence in chapter 9 comes as a shock. Paul writes of the sorrow and unceasing anguish he feels because his fellow Jews are separated from God. The God he just said will not be separated from his people. He says he could, not that he does, but that he could wish himself cursed and cut off from the Messiah if doing so would somehow bring his fellow countrymen to Christ. And as he writes that, he clearly has. So when you're reading Paul, always understand he has the Bible in his mind. His mind has been formed around the scripture. And when he says what he's just said, he's thinking of Moses who in Exodus 33 offered to suffer separation from God to save his fellow Israelites. Remember, Moses said, then blot block my name out of your book, but save these people. Well, in verses four and five, Paul highlights the enormous advantages that those people, the Israelites, have. Theirs is the adoption of son. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. We'll be looking and go deep, by the way, at that verse in particular. That's an important verse. There are at least two reasons Paul takes the time to highlight the Jews' advantages. And the first one, you have to remember the setting. You don't want to let this go far from mind when you're reading Romans. He's writing to a church that is struggling With ethnic tension. The Jews, banished from Rome by Claudius, were permitted to return by Nero, and the Jesus following Jews, among them, returned to their churches when they came back. They were its leaders when they left, and now that they're back, they don't know where they fit. And there's even some question if they fit at all. Hasn't God given up on the Jews? and turn to the Gentiles? Some of the things that Paul said and wrote could be interpreted that way. And Paul's aware of that. And he wants to set the record straight. Secondly, the advantages that Paul attributes to the Jews here, at least some of them, are ones he's already attributed to Gentile believers in Jesus earlier in the letter. For example, believers in Jesus are Abraham's heirs, so the patriarchs are also theirs. That was chapter 4. They are God's adopted children. That's chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. So theirs is also the adoption. They are the heirs of God's glory. That's chapter 5, verse 2. Chapters, chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. So theirs is also the divine glory. And on top of all that, they are the possessors of the Spirit. That's chapter 8. So what Paul does here is crucial. He is saying that Gentile believers in Christ have been written into Israel's story and so share her blessings and her promises. The story that Paul is telling turns out to be, surprisingly, our story. Abraham is our father. The slavery and the exodus, the disobedience and the punishment, the banishment and the restoration, they're part of our history. Now, we're not commandeering someone else's story. We're being written into it quite apart from ourselves, and entirely by grace. So have the Gentiles then replaced the Jews? Out with the old, in with the new? No, that is not how it, it works. God's story is more complex than that. He's not done with Israel, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 11. He has a plan, and he will make it work. In 9.6, he raises that question did God's word to Israel fail? And he answers the question by telling Israel's story and pointing out that from the very beginning, God's promises were given to some, but not to others. For example, the promise to Abraham and his descendants did not include all of Abraham's children, only Isaac. Nor was the promise intended for all of Isaac's children only Jacob. It didn't extend to Esau. And this had nothing to do with Jacob's qualifications or Esau's lack thereof, but everything to do with God's purpose, which he chose to accomplish through Jacob before he was even born. And just in case we might not understand, Paul points out that this was not because God could foresee that Jacob would be the better man. Jacob was a scoundrel Look at verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Now, when we read this, we're liable to stress the word election. That's not where the emphasis lies. God's purpose is the issue. Election is the means. In grammatical terms, God's purpose is the the nominative case, election is the accusative. Election is not an end in itself. It serves God's purpose, which is the salvation of His people to His great glory. We'll see more of that when we get to chapter 11. So God chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Jacob to play a special role in accomplishing his purpose. And this had nothing to do with uh, Jacob's qualifications and everything to do with God's purpose. In verse 13, Paul quotes the prophet Malachi to support that idea. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In this passage, by the way, if you go back to Malachi, the prophet was not talking about individuals, but about nations. Jacob is the nation Israel not isaac's scoundrel son and esau is the nation edom not isaac's boorish son god chose to display his love through the nation israel now that doesn't really seem fair does it why them why not somebody else and of course paul knows that that's what people will think And so instead of waiting for them to think about it, he puts it right out there in front of everyone in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust or unrighteous? That's the word. This is a question that's haunted humankind since the garden when the serpent planted the idea in our parents' minds. Is God unjust? Now we might expect Paul to say, oh, don't even say that. No, no, no. God is even-handed and kind. He is the, the first equal opportunity employer. But that's not what Paul says. His answer is, God is God. And he can do whatever he wants. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, the first thing for us to get straight is that God is God, and we are not. That's been our whole problem all along. God can do what he wants. And more than that, God will do what he wants. If you don't like it, apply for his job. But I'll tell you right now, there aren't any openings. God is not a man, as the Bible tells us again and again. For example, Numbers 23:19, 1 Samuel 15:29. Job 9.32, Jeremiah 49.19, I am not a man. I'm not like you. We apparently need to be reminded of that fact, as did the psalmist, that God is not like us. You thought I was altogether like you. That's Psalm 50. But he's not. He's not on our plane. We can't begin to understand him. We can't even begin to begin He exists in a different way than we do. He relates to time and space differently than us. We would not know God at all if he didn't reveal himself to us. And yet a direct revelation of him would overwhelm our minds and our senses. It would kill us. No one can see my face. That is, no one can have a direct revelation of me, God told Moses, and live. Exodus 33 again, that passage is running through Paul's mind. So God gives us only what we can take. He mediates his revelation to us through ideas and words, through creation and scripture, but primarily through his son. We encounter his mind-shattering presence in Christ and in his cross. The cross is key. You'll never know this God apart from the cross. Now, verse 15 has often been mishandled. And it's a quote, guess from where? Exodus 33. Paul's mind's just running along that track in which God was speaking to Moses. This is, we often read this verse as if it says, I'm arbitrary in my dealings with people. I'll just do whatever I want. I have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy and compassion on whom I cho- choose to have compassion. And then we add sort of in our thinking, even though God doesn't say this, and I'll show no mercy to those whom I choose to be merciless with and with whole compassion when I feel like it. But that's not what God is saying. The context, which Paul knew well, remember he's already alluded to it, is from Exodus 33, where Israel had already abandoned the God who had just rescued them from Egypt. You remember the story? They made a calf idol out of gold, to replace God. And when God tells Moses he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy and show compassion to whom he'll show compassion, he's talking about having mercy on the people who just abandoned him. And he has mercy because, verse 16, it does not, and it is God's purposes, does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If it depended on man's desire or effort, none of us would have any hope. But thank God it does not. Or take Pharaoh, as Paul does. Pharaoh was no neutral party, he was not a blank slate on which God arbitrarily wrote a destiny. Pharaoh was the man who enslaved and tormented God's people and intentionally blocked God's purpose. He had already hardened his heart repeatedly before the conversation in verse 17 took place. And yet God didn't destroy him. He used him to display his power and to make the people of earth aware of him. When in verse 18 Paul says that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and he will harden whom he wants to harden, the thing to note is that God did both in Pharaoh's life. He had mercy on him again and again and again. He withdrew punishment from him repeatedly. Rather than destroying this obstinate man, God raised him up. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you read Exodus, it's pretty clear, especially in chapters 8 and 9, how he did it, by having mercy on him. After each of the plagues of frogs, flies, hail, and locusts, Pharaoh pleaded for mercy, and every time God granted it. But as soon as Pharaoh got relief from his trouble, he doubled down on his refusal to cooperate with God. Exodus 8, 15 says that when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And that happened again and again. So when in verse 19 Paul asks, is God unfair? The answer is something like this. If having mercy on people who don't deserve it is unfair, if being patient with people who deserve to be punished is unfair, if sparing a man's life who responded to mercy by hardening his heart is unfair, then yes, God is unfair, but God is not unfair. Let me try to make this clear. God is under no obligation to act in a way that suits us. Thank goodness. If he acted in a way that suited us, we'd all be lost. God acts toward us according to his character and his word. And our hope lies right there. The God described in Romans 9 is the God of Psalm 115, verse 1. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He does what pleases him. You don't like that? Well, tough. He's not at your beck and call, he's not your servant. He can't be manipulated, he can't be bought, he can't be used. He's not a golden calf. He is God most high, God in heaven, and he does what pleases him. But don't stop there. Ask yourself what pleases him. And the answer is, he is pleased, verse 33, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. It pleases him to conform us to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what pleases him. Who are the objects of his mercy, verse 24? Even us, whom he also called not only from Jews but also from Gentiles. With that line, Paul has brought us back to our main theme. Did God's word fail since the people he called the Jews largely rejected him, but the Gentiles believed. And the answer that Paul has been developing is no, God's word did not fail because it has always been his plan to work through a smaller group within the larger group. It was through Isaac, not all of Abraham's children that God worked. It was through Jacob, not all of Isaac's children that God worked. It was through the remnant, not all ethnic Jews that God worked. And finally it was through the one true Israelite within the remnant, the Messiah, Jesus that God worked. Now we need to think about what this means. First, it means that God achieves his purpose and he sovereignly selects people, the theological term for that is election, to do so. But notice in this most important passage about God's sovereignty, Paul does not relate selection slash election to this or that individual getting into heaven. That's not been mentioned. It's not even been implied. The selection of individuals in this passage is not for a heavenly destiny, but for an earthly role in God's purpose, which is grander and better than we've yet dreamed. And note, too, that even if you harden your heart like Pharaoh did, God will still use you for his purpose. If you ignore God, fight God, deny God, do everything in your power to dishonor God, he will still use you for his purpose. You can't stop him. But you can cooperate with him. Your life will serve his purpose, whether willingly or unwillingly, is up to you. And we have to ask ourselves, which will it be? Something else we must grasp here. Paul's been retelling the story of Israel. It's a, that, it, that is the backbone of chapters 9 and 10. He's retelling what's happened in Israel. Abraham's call, the choice of Isaac, the choice of Jacob, Of Pharaoh's rebellion, of Israel's failure, and God's mercy. He tells the story in chapter 9 all the way to the promised return from the exile. And it's a familiar story, but there's a surprise here. And that is, it turns out to be our story if we belong to Messiah Jesus. Our roots, our history, our God. That explains how Dietrich Bonhoeffer could say, only in the holy scriptures do we get to know our own story. You'll never know your story from looking at your life. Bonhoeffer says, in fact, it's more important for us to know what God did for Israel and God's son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. What we call our life, our troubles, and our guilt are by no means the whole of reality. Our life, our need, our guilt, and our deliverance are there in the scriptures. The important thing is that your life story be brought into God's epic story through faith in Jesus. And if it has, you've probably noticed how God's editing your story. He's cutting out some things. Sin, unloving attitudes, greed, prejudice, pride. And he's adding some things. You may also have noticed how the themes we see in Jesus' life are being written into your life. And those include misunderstanding, suffering, rejection, rejection, but also friends, love, purpose, joy. In the end, if your story is written into the story, the one story, God's story, it will have a happily ever after ending. Because the sovereign God will make it so and nothing can stop him. Hold on to that if your story is part of his story, it will have a happily ever after ending. But you're not at the end of your story yet. So don't be surprised by conflict and difficulty and darkness. You need to keep the faith. This, the story of the sovereign God who pursues his purpose and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through obstinate Pharaoh and Israel's idolatry and exile is the story of how he pursues his purpose in you. It's your story. Are you sticking to it? What if you fail? What if you're not strong enough? What if things get too dark and difficult for you? Well, then remember verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Literally, therefore then, not desiring, not running, boy, we've done enough of that, but the mercying of God. See, that's the reason the predestination verses are in this passage to reassure us. It's the sovereign God who does what he pleases, who's directing our story. And what pleases him is to take your story with all its failures, all its stylistic problems, into his storyline and make it beautiful. So are you sticking to your story and to the God who is writing it? Let's pray. Lord, remind us again that this is by your grace, not by our desires or our running, but by your mercy. You've taken us into this great story. Lord, we can't see how our little part of it turns out. At least, we can't see what's going to happen tomorrow. Grant us grace in the storyteller. Grant us confidence in him, in Jesus' name.